the spectacular weekend that we have been given. Uh, I've been hearing from many of you who uh, participated in some way in the five-day challenge and how that uh, rolled out in your family. Can I just see, uh, by way of hand, how many of you did anything related to the five-day challenge this past week? Okay, great. Thank you for that. Um, uh, I hope, I, I sent out an email on uh, yesterday morning just asking for feedback, anything that you learned, any takeaways. I uh, really hope that you will take me up on that. And uh, I know that there are many of you who have already been involved in packing food with Feed My Starving Children. Another 250, I guess, will be doing it later this afternoon. This is what the manna packs look like. This is a meal for six, uh, 50,000 meals, or I guess a little fewer, so we're running slightly behind, but uh, 47,000 meals were packed yesterday and another uh, hopefully 53,000 meals will be packed today. Uh, So we have 100,000 meals that will be going to Swaziland where the average life expectancy at this moment is less than 32 years. So uh, we're glad for this and thank you for supporting this and if you want to continue to make uh, contributions towards the cost of this and future, future Feed My Starving Children events, there is, um, there's an opportunity to do that out in the lobby uh, at one of the tables. Well, as, as has already been established, today is Ascension Sunday, which in the early church was uh, recognized as one of the six most important days of the year, but which today... Uh, especially in Protestant circles, uh, has almost completely fallen off the map. And and part of the challenge that that we have today is that many people do not get the storyline. Many people look at the Bible as a collection of morality lessons and inspirational uh, tales that are designed to encourage us to to go do good things. Uh, but they don't understand the broad sweeping flow of Scripture. And to the extent that they see the flow and understand that everything is really pointing towards Christ, there's still a failure many times to think about Christ before he became man, because he's eternal and has existed from eternity past. There's a failure to think about Jesus before He enters the world through a virgin's womb, and there is a failure to think much past saying that he rose again from the dead. And so uh, today, on Ascension Sunday, uh, I want to to try and correct that, and to do that by uh, backing up and getting a running start and and looking at what I think are the, uh, the 12 major turning points in the story in the Bible, in Scripture. There are these watershed moments. There are, there are pivotal events, inflection points that change everything. And in order to understand really much of anything, you have to understand each of these points. And so I want to walk through those and then we're going to uh, really focus on the ascension and coronation of Jesus Christ as King. So event number one would, of course, be Creation, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created everything, everywhere. And this is significant because, among other things, it means he owns everything, everywhere, including you and me. It's 
also significant in light of today's message to note that God the Father created everything through God the Son. Now, Jesus doesn't actually get named Jesus until the Incarnation. Before the Incarnation, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, exists as the Word, the Logos. But we read in John 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All the, he was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him. Nothing was created except those things that were created through the Logos. Second big event would, of course, be the fall, Genesis 3. Everything is good. We're given dominion over the world, but there is a rebellion. We try to be like God. We're not satisfied being the creator, and in that reach, everything breaks. Sin enters the world and ravages everything everywhere. We are broken, cut off from God, separated, spiritually dead. Third big event would be the promise. Still in Genesis 3, but there in the context of God explaining the consequences of our actions, the consequences of our sin, he makes a promise. And he says that he will send one who is going to make things right, one who will defeat evil, the seed of woman. And this is the first reference that we have to Jesus who is referred to here as the seed of woman because, of course, he will enter the world. He will become a man without the agency of a human male. He exists. Our life begins at conception. He's eternal. So he is going to enter through a virgin's womb. He's referred to as the seed of woman. God promises that he's going to send someone to rescue us, to redeem us. The Messiah. Next event is the call of Abraham. Between Genesis 3 and Genesis 12, there are some big ticket items that, that happen. But basically what they are telling us is that we're, we really are broke. We really are in trouble. We really cannot fix ourselves. This is out of hand. We need a rescuer. We need this Savior. And so God goes to Abraham and makes a deal. He, he extends a call to Abraham. Abraham, leave your home and everything you know and follow me and I will give you land, I will give you descendants, and I will bless everyone through you. This is the second reference to Christ. This blessing that is going to come through Abraham is the Messiah, is Jesus. So, Leave everything, follow me, I will give you what you need, I will give you land, I will, I will give you descendants, and, and I'm going to bless everybody through your bloodline. And so the rest of the Old Testament, page 10 in my Bible, all the way through page 800, is just all about Abraham and his descendants, the people of God, the Jews. So we follow this story reading asking ourselves and wondering, when is this rescuer going to appear? Right? When is God going to honor the promise? And we watch as, as the Jews sort of go up and go down, and, and during the context of, of these 800 pages, right, God reveals himself more and more to them and consequently to us. He reveals himself through the law. 
We, we, he reveals who we are through them, and we see how broken we are and how unable we are to keep our word and do the right thing. He reinforces and, and prepares the, the, the idea that a rescuer will come by, by, by speaking through the prophets and through the sacrificial system, which just establishes the idea that we are broken and someone is going to have to die for us. Blood is going to have to be shed for us. So we read all this wondering how God is going to pull this all together, and the Old Testament ends with a whimper. The Jews at one point are, are the superpower of the world. But by the time the Old Testament ends, they have fallen and are, they're really nothing. I mean, the 12 tribes have, have been decimated. Ten of them are completely gone. Two of them, have been, they're just remnants of what they were. The temple that was glorious under Solomon, completely destroyed. They've built a small little building to try and replace it. And, and they're just, they're, they're confused and they're wondering... When is the promised one going to show up? When is God going to make this right? Now at this point, they believe that making it right will be sending a king in the, in the, the sort of the position and in the template of David and that is going to restore them to the glory days they had under King David and King Solomon. That's not right. But what happens when the Old Testament ends is that God goes silent for 400 years. And then the next big inflection point is the incarnation. So the 400 years of radio silence is broken when the angel goes first to Zechariah and says, uh, your wife is going to give birth to a son and he is the one who will, who will block for uh, the Savior of the world. He is the, he is the forerunner. He is going to prepare people and tell them that the time is now, the kingdom of God is at hand, I'm going to send the one I promised. And then that angel goes to uh, a young virgin by the name of Mary and says, You have found favor with God. You will give birth to a son and he will save his people from their sins. He will be the king. And what we are being told is that God is going to become man. The Logos is going to put on human flesh and human form. And while remaining fully God, he is going to become fully man. And we're given a little bit about what happens at his birth. And then we're given a little bit about what happens when he turns 12. And then, we're, then we pick up the story when Christ is 30. And John the Baptist is calling people to prepare, to repent, to get ready for what God is going to do. And Jesus walks out into the Jordan River to be baptized. And from that moment on, it's always Jesus on the page. We are following what's going on in the life and work of Christ. And, and he is, spends some time in the desert being tempted as the second Adam. The first Adam had failed that test. He goes out into the desert as the second Adam. And then he emerges and he spends three years preaching and teaching and loving and healing and basically unfolding the, the, the kingdom and, and revealing God and, and calling people to follow him. And as those three years progress, he is increasingly clear about two big things. First, he is God. The Jews were not expecting the Messiah to be God. Again, they thought it would be a political, military leader. He says that he is God. Secondly, he says that he's going 
to die, that he's going to Jerusalem to die. Most people do not understand what he's saying, including his followers. But they go into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. Jesus enters at the time of the Passover because he is the Passover sacrifice. He is making that point as clearly as he can. Initially, it looks like he's going to be the political Messiah that they want. He parades in. The crowds are cheering. The flags are waving. It looks like he will be who they want. But Monday, when he goes into the temple, it's clear he's headed down a different path. He pulls out a whip. He drives out the sacrifices. He turns over the table, and he starts saying very crazy things. On Tuesday, he's teaching and healing people, but as he is teaching, he is, he is making it clear that the Jews are headed down the wrong path, and the religious leaders in particular are misleading people. And then on Wednesday, he's betrayed, and on Thursday, they celebrate the Passover meal in which he claims it is about him, and he changes that into the Lord's Supper, and then that night, he and uh, the disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays, waiting uh, through the night, asking for strength and encouragement. And early that morning, uh, Judas shows up with the soldiers, and Christ is arrested. And he's paraded in front of a few people in what ostensibly counts as a trial. He goes before Annas, the former high priest, and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and he goes before Herod and Pilate. And then he is stripped, and he is whipped, and he is mocked, and he's spit on, and, and he has nails uh, pounded, driven through his hands and his feet on a cross, and he is suspended between heaven and earth, and by noon the, the sky goes black and the ground shakes, and by three o'clock he has died. And what has happened during that time is that we have seen Jesus who started as God in heaven with glory, now descend to the lowest possible place anyone could go. No one could start as high as Jesus. No one could go as low as Jesus. Right? He is God, but he has become creation. Huge downsizing. Right? He, has, he has become part of the creation. And not just become part of the creation, he's become a man, he's become a slave, a slave going to his death, and not just death, but death on a cross. And then he is additionally become sin. Right? The, the crucifixion was designed by the Romans to humiliate and to torture people. It's the worst way you could die. It was physically grueling and degrading. But the worst part for Christ was not the physical pain on the cross. It's that he becomes sin. He takes your sin, my sin, the sin of everyone who is going to cry out for forgiveness to God. He takes that, he becomes that, and he bears the penalty for that sin. He bears it for us. And that means he goes lower. Right? He takes all the wretchedness of all of us, he takes that upon himself and he bears the penalty for that sin. He goes as low as anybody could possibly go. And then he rises again. He, is, he has gone that low because that was the assignment and that is the only way that a loving and just God could be both loving and just. God cannot just wink away sin. It has to be atoned for. It has to be accounted for. You can't, you can't 
You can't call a judge just who doesn't say that things need to be made right. But, but he is willing to pay that himself. And that's the unbelievable gift that we get from God the Father who sends his son to make it right. Christ dies and, he, and his body goes into the grave and, and parts of three days, probably about 40 hours, he, he lies in that grave and then he rises again. Okay? This is the next big event, crucifixion to resurrection. His, his heart starts beating again, the blood starts to flow, Christ comes back from dead. And during the next 40 days, he then will, will move among his followers. He will appear first to the women and then to the 12, and after that he's going to appear to a bunch of people, eventually 500, and he is going to make it very clear to them that he is not a spirit, he is alive. His body has come back to life. He is the firstborn from the dead. Others, like Lazarus, had been resuscitated, but they would die again. Jesus has been raised immortal. He has defeated death. He has a real body, right? He eats fish, they touch him, he's alive. And he also uses those 40 days to explain to them who he is and why he did what he did and how this plan fits together. They did not get it. They were looking in the wrong direction. They were expecting the wrong kind of Messiah. They did not understand what he was doing and why he was doing it. But he explains, on the road to Emmaus and in other places, he explains the plan to the disciples. And they finally get it. It's all about him. It's always been about him. I have this uh, that I ran across this week in my preparation. This is an excerpt from from, uh, a sermon that Tim Keller preached. He says, the light went on and they came to realize that David killing Goliath wasn't ultimately a call for us to defeat giants. It was an event that pointed ahead to Jesus who would defeat the giants that can really kill us. Jesus was and is the true and better Adam who passed the test in a much tougher garden and whose obedience was credited to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocent, was slain, and whose blood cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our redemption. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered God's call and left the comfort of the familiar to go into the void, a place not known for us. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up, but who was sacrificed by his father. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who was sold into slavery, but who rose to sit at the right hand of power and forgive those who sold him. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the Father and mankind and mediates a better covenant. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly position, but who lost a heavenly one and didn't say, if I die, but said, when I die, I give my life for my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out of the boat into the storm so that we can be saved, and who survived after three days in the belly of the beast. Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. Jesus is the true and better temple. Jesus is the true and better prophet. Jesus is the true and better priest. It's always all about Jesus. The story is about Jesus. It is about God's rescue of us. And during those 40 days, they finally got it. 
They fi- it finally clicked. And then, at the end of those 40 days, while standing in the presence of his disciples, he ascended into heaven. He slowly rose into heaven. And this was critical. It's critical that the disciples saw this because they needed to know that his time here on earth was done. He was finished. They weren't going to keep running into him again. They'd been running into him over the last 40 days. He was done now. He was ascending into heaven. And it's not just that he ascended into the sky. He actually ascended into the cloud of glory. He ascended into heaven. And they saw him there. They saw that he had been lifted up and that he was at the right hand of God the Father in glory with power. Now that's, that ascension and coronation is, is not the end of the inflection points of the big ticket items that we have to understand. The next thing that happens is with the power that has been given to him, he then sends the Holy Spirit. We have Pentecost. He empowers his followers to be able to go carry out and continue to advance the kingdom as he has instructed them to do. And then, and now we're getting into future events, all of that is what has happened. We then get into future events. We have the promised return of Christ. And then we have the final resurrection. When we die, our body goes into the ground. Our soul, if we know Christ, goes to be with Christ. There will be a resurrection in the end where we will be raised as Christ was. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is the firstfruits of of the resurrection. We will follow. We will get new bodies. Then there will be a judgment. And then there will be eternity. Now, our focus again today is on this ascension. Because it's Ascension Sunday. The ascension happened... Uh, 40 days after Easter, which would have been Thursday. So really, the ascension is officially recognized on a Thursday, but but we recognize Ascension Sunday. And so I want to read to you the account that we have of this and then just make a couple very brief reflections. The account is recorded, again, at the end of the book of Luke, and then Luke, who writes the book of Acts, opens the book of Acts with it as well. I'm reading Acts chapter 1, verses 8 and following. Jesus speaking says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, there's actually um, other passages that sort of help us understand everything that is going on here. And there's a lot that is going on here, and the, the implications of the ascension are profound. It's significant for us to recognize, again, that Jesus goes up, he ascends, 
with a physical body. It's uh, significant for us to to pause and, and just acknowledge that he is the first one to get this new immortal body. It's significant for us uh, to realize that this is uh, sort of the fulfillment of a, uh, uh, of a spiritual principle. It's the quintessential example of this idea that if you humble yourself, God will exalt you. No one humbled themselves more than Christ. No one is exalted higher than Jesus, who is given the name that is above every name, that, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God. He is lifted to the highest place. This passage is significant because it shows a fulfillment of prophecy. In uh, Daniel chapter 7, hundreds of years before Christ is born, Daniel has a vision of Christ's ascension. And he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man. By the way, again, Son of Man is the way Jesus refers to himself. Some people think mistakenly that it's a very humble statement, that it means that he's, he's saying, I'm just the Son of Man, I'm not the Son of God. No. <laughs> he's, he's making a very, very bold statement. He calls himself the Son of Man. Daniel says, I, I had this vision um, And I saw one, like the Son of Man, uh, coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, clouds refers to the Shekinah glory of God. So one, like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that would be God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is like one that will never be destroyed. There are a variety of reasons why this ascension is important and why uh, so much ink gets spilled about it. I simply want to end by making two observations that are immediately applicable to us. The first one is, we, we need to understand that Christ is not just risen, he has ascended. Right? He's not just, he, he didn't just conquer death. He has been given all authority and power in heaven and on earth. He was crowned as king. He is above everyone and everything. He is the, he is the, 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 the king of kings, the Lord God Almighty. And he rules and reigns from the right hand of his father. And at this moment, he has not exerted his ultimate control, which he will one day. And, and he will make it clear right, that, that everything will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everything will be made right. But we have the promise and the assurance. He has defeated death. He hasn't destroyed it, but he will. He has defeated the enemy. He hasn't bound him for, forever, but he will. He will win. He has already ascended in heaven to the right hand of the Father. And from that point, he will return. We need to live in light of a, an ascended king. And secondly, that means we need to be about his work. 
right? The, the, the disciples are looking up. They've just seen Christ ascend into heaven. They've seen him surrounded by glory. They know what's going on now. They finally get it. And as they're still looking, overwhelmed by what they've seen, the angels show up and they go, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. Right? In other words, so do what he just told you to do. Right? He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Here he says, the church, I'm going to go send the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. You have an assignment. Go take the kingdom and live it out. Tell people about me. Serve others. Proclaim the good news. Engage in good works. We've been given an assignment by the ultimate sovereign over everything who says that he will return. We need to live in light, not just of a risen Lord who suffered and died and went to the depths for us, but of an ascended king, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord God Almighty, May our understanding of your plan grow uh, ever clearer. And may our understanding of uh, the opportunities that we have today to be part of what will ultimately prevail and triumph uh, move and motivate us to live into the kingdom and the values and the love and to serve and to, and to share and to give and to be like Jesus and to point people to Jesus to talk about your rescue plan and how you brought it about, to talk about the offer that is given to us to be forgiven of sins and given new life through Christ. Lord God, we pray that we would be uh, not like the disciples who are slow to act. We would be about your work.